Please note that the contents of model mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on model mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about model mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. On this episode of Model Mentality, we are speaking with Corrine Holtes, a supermodel from the 80s who is best known for walking the runways for Donna Karen, Michael Kors, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren and more, and who graced the covers of magazines such as Harper's, Cosmopolitan and Vogue. She was scouted in Amsterdam in her teens and eventually came to New York where her modelling career took off. In her late 20s, she decided to leave her modelling career behind and move back to the Netherlands. Since then, she has embarked on a career as a news anchor. She became a mother and is now an artist and ceramicist. She is most proud of graduating from the esteemed Rietzfeld Art Academy at age 50, raising two incredible daughters and trusting the universe. In this episode with Corrine, we discuss her perspective on her modelling career and her career trajectory after modelling, and two specific mental health topics, skin picking and marijuana abuse, both which served as means to cope with anxiety and stress during her early years. We hope you enjoy this episode. So when did you first start modeling? I, I think I, I started the very, very first time I did something. It was in 1980 when oh, wow, I was 14, yeah. 14, 15 years old. Um, how did you get scouted to model? I was at a party and... Um, a girl came up to me and she said, well, my mother has a modeling agency and uh, maybe it would be interesting for you. So that's how it happened. And I hardly, I knew, I was with a casting agency before, but that was an agency with kids and dogs and elderly people just for commercials. And other than that, I didn't really, I wasn't conscious of uh, modeling or models or that this was a business or a profession I had no idea and I, I didn't also know what what was the content of that profession really so mm. I thought oh that would be a good uh, job so I just went but I remember going there and I said uh, so this is what do I need to do and he said well of course you need to shave I said shave what do you mean shave like your arms. I said, no, shave my armpits. I, I thought it was so ridiculously unnatural. How could they demand that, you know? Later I learned you don't not only shave your armpits, but your whole legs. So 
that was um, my first encounter with professional modeling. And it was nice. It was a beautiful agency called Ula Models in Amsterdam. But Ula, Ula passed away, unfortunately. She was really sweet. Yeah. And then uh, later I had another agency in Amsterdam called The Bookers. And uh, I had already then decided I didn't want to be a model. And I started working for, for a movie producer, for a little job. And this other agency called me up and he said, yes, we have a scout from New York here. She's wanting to set up an agency in New York, a smaller agency. She, her name is Bethann Hardison. And uh, she wants to talk with you about uh, whether you are interested. And I, out of politeness, I went not, and I said, well, I, I've, you know, I'm not really interested, but I'm glad to meet you. And just to be polite, I said, okay, well, when I'm ever in New York, I will come and visit you. Not knowing that six months later or so, this movie producer that I worked for needed to go to the States for um, the Oscars because his movie was nominated for Best Foreign Film or Made a Chance, I don't remember. And I said, okay, that's nice. It's the first time of my life that I'm in the United States, so I will take a holiday after we're done working and visit New York. And then I kept my promise and went to visit this lady, Bethann Hardison. And she said, that's great, you're here. I'm going to send you to this photographer. He's just upcoming, uh, new talent. Uh, his name is Stephen Mizell. Just go <laughs> pay him a visit. I said, okay, fine. And then he, he booked me for this job, and it was for American Vogue. And I knew Vogue, that's really special. But since I worked for uh, magazines in Amsterdam, I thought that was normal then you work for a magazine in in the states it's sort of comparable which is absurd it's not comparable but i had no clue so that's how it all started wow a few months later these pictures came in the magazine and then i had extra bookings and then i traveled back and forth to work and then i had so much work that i had to start moving to new york to uh, to be able to work so that's how it started. Amazing. Stephen Mizell is such a legend. That's crazy. Um, what did now you... he is a, is a legend, but then still, then he was not yet that big of a legend. Right. He was uh, upcoming. Yeah. What did you find the hardest yeah. about the transition into full-time modeling? Well, what did I find the hardest? I found the hardest that um, you can never plan anything for yourself. Like, let's say you want to do a course or develop yourself in another field. You cannot have a planning that, let's say, I have a lesson in this or that every week on Thursday evening or something. Because you're, you're booked for trips. Uh, so there's no continuation in your development and besides modeling. Amidst all of the craziness of modeling, what habits kept you grounded? Reading and eating healthily and having uh, friends outside of the modeling business. Yeah, that's what kept me, me grounded. And if I had a chance I, to go see museums or uh, art or go to a theater, things like that. Yeah. What are your favorite things to read? My favorite things to read? Well, I back then I already was very interested in... Uh, esoterics and spiritual uh, books, uh, the occult, things like that. I really wanted to find out 
what is the meaning of life? Who am I? Why am I here? What what are we doing here? And why? What what is really behind everything? So that that's very interesting, of course. So I like biographies. Yeah. So I read a lot of nonfiction and poetry, but I don't read a lot of novels. Um, how did that sort of mindset, that seeking mindset? translate into modeling going on set and being surrounded in such an like an exterior focused industry how did that affect you uh there's a lot a big tension between the two so i was always trying to find somehow some sort of a meaning or to give a meaning to being a model and modeling but uh, i found that that's very hard I still find it very hard and even now I have become um, more conscious because more people have become conscious about the the long the side effects in the long run of the whole fashion industry and modeling on on female citizens and the the self image that have people of themselves because people compare themselves to all these photos and images of people that are being totally made up with a hairdresser and a makeup artist and a stylist. And it's very unrealistic, even though people compare themselves with this unrealistic image. And it makes a lot of people unhappy and may even have caused eating disorders and things like that. And so I find that difficult that I was part of that. There's not a positive contribution for a lot of people, especially young young women. On the other hand, you could say that uh, being a model, you contribute to creating beauty. Let's say beautiful photograph in a fashion magazine could also be inspiring. But there's a lot more to it than, than just that. There's a whole industry around that. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's a very large, complicated, complex uh, world and field. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I sort of struggle with that. Also, what was my role and what was my responsibility? And uh, because in fact, I believe that modeling and being a model is utterly unnatural. But in which way can it be positive? That's interesting to think about. And maybe when, if in the future it could be that models could be functioning more like a muse for designers and photographers, because there's nothing wrong with beauty, of course not. It's it's could be celebrating a celebration of life, but not to make other people feel miserable. Maybe then. All the other, um, all the other expressions of uh, fashion and the exterior that are necessary for commercial uh, means could be done by normal people that are not professional models. They don't look extremely thin or tall or uh, long hair, but be like ordinary people and have the really you know, extremely beautiful people more function as a muse for a creation. I don't know. 
fantasizing with. I've seen some uh, photographs and expressions in the media with uh, women that are a little bit more curvy. So I remember when I was when I was modeling in the 80s, uh, there had not been a model of color on a cover of Vogue. I remember when there did appear a cover with a model of color. It was a big thing. It was like a you know. It was really important. Yeah. So I find I found that very difficult. Also. I remember working and uh, there's all these people like a hairdresser, makeup artist, art director, stylist, assistant to the photographer, photographer, caterer. And then there's the woman who is ironing the clothes. The woman ironing the clothes would always be a woman of color. Always. And I, oh, I found it really hard. Yeah. So I hope that changed. I hope that now women of all colors and also, you know, are ironing and designing and taking photographs and modeling and that there's no segregation in this uh, way. I can attest to that. I'm is there? Is it, yeah. Has it changed? It Do has, you know, Bridget? Is, did it change? Even since I started modeling and I okay. started in 2005 in Australia, compared from then to now, it's changed so much much more place a place of much more inclusivity what are, what were the qualities that made for a successful model during the time that you were actively modeling well it appeared to me that besides having certain features and all that that it would pay off in a certain way if you would be sort of of a drama queen really you know? that would was found to be interesting yeah because then there's uh, yeah there, there's a story about someone. I, I, I thought that the, the, the models that were sort of silent and modest, they would not as soon be, become as successful as the models that had, you know, always the, that made drama and um, there was, they made something to gossip about, you know. That is another factor that has really changed. If you're on set and you're difficult to work with or creating drama or in any way taking the attention off the shoot, there's a million girls waiting to take your place. I'm going to pass it over to Ali now to go a little bit deeper. We're so happy to have you here in the studio with us, Corrine. And please note that this episode, um, we did it, we recorded it in two parts and therefore the sound quality might be a little bit different. Um, we're experimenting for the first time with recording remotely. So bear with us if you see any changes in the quality of the recording. You've been in and out of the industry, right? There were times that you quit modeling and then you came back and you quit modeling and you came back. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that, that ambivalence, and I'm calling it ambivalence, but that process of why you were going in and out of the industry. You know, was there a struggle for you personally? Well, first of all, of course, um, being asked to model is a, is a big, big privilege. And um, I didn't really realize at that time when I was 15 where I was getting into, but I did know that I wanted um, to be independent. And I did know that modeling, you could make easily, you could make uh, money, like serious money. And when I was 16, I had a boyfriend and he was a, several years older than I am and he decided that he would go to Tokyo for a year. He was a beginning photographer. 
And uh, and I wanted to visit him because a year not seeing him was really long. And I knew my parents would never let me go, not financially, but also not this idea that I was so young and then to the other side of the world. So I thought, okay, if I can do this modeling, then I can make some money and I just buy my ticket and I just go. So that was the first, um, my first motivation was um, independence, financial independence and freedom. Um, and then I started modeling and I had no idea what it was. I didn't know, I thought, I knew, okay, people take your photograph. So I would put their clothes on and stand there and, you know, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had no clue that, that you were supposed to sort of move around and give looks and do all that. So eventually I learned that, of course. But in the beginning, it must have been hard for photographers to work with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but doing that, um, in the, when I was, I was still in school, so I could only do it after school hours. And it was in Holland. And the fashion industry in Holland was sort of really uh, gemütlich, or how do you say this in English? It was sort of cozy and friendly. It was fun, you know, when there was a shoot people would have the feeling of, oh, we have a nice day out and we just uh, have a good time together And while we were working. We were definitely working seriously, but everybody was in a good mood and we were making jokes and laughing. And um, But then later, when I started working in New York, it was more, much more serious. And, yeah, really a difference in, in atmosphere. However, I came... Um, from school, I was a really a serious girl studying violin. I always thought I was was going to become a violinist. And I was preparing for the conservatory. Then I was on the conservatory and modeling at the same time. It was a really different world. And I, the longer I was modeling, I the more I felt and realized that I cannot really express myself in this profession you are sort of a, a canvas for other people, their expressions, and maybe also their commercial uh, needs and ambitions. And um, so that that eventually didn't help my fulfillment, my feeling of fulfillment in this profession. So in the end, in your late 20s, what motivated you to finally leave modeling? Well, when you're 28, you're you're uh, no, you're not disabled. But how's this called? You're like like yeah, like a retired person in the normal world. So uh, you can still model, but there are uh, lots of uh, colleagues who are 16, and that so that's really strange. Also, that is something that we could maybe talk about it, but the whole business, this idea that only young girls could be representative of the whole female population of this planet. Well, let's talk about that right now since you've brought it up. I know that you said to me you have a radical view, you know, on uh, mass media images, modeling, perhaps you playing a part and being part of the problem, as you said. What is your view on what should be represented in 
mass media in terms of images? I feel that every woman and man and boy and girl in the world should feel good about themselves and good about their bodies. Bodies are divine vehicles. And in the fashion industry and in the beauty industry, uh, we are made believe that you only are really good looking when you're really, really thin and really, really young. And it's not realistic. So I know that you said you were one of the fortunate ones in that you were fit, you could eat whatever you wanted, and that wasn't the case of every model perhaps that you've met. But did you working in the fashion industry at a young age, either in Amsterdam, in New York, have an effect on your view of your own body? Oh yes, it definitely had an effect on the view of my own body. And the fact is, when you're modeling, you are surrounded by the most beautiful girls of the world, the whole wide world. I mean, extremely gorgeous women. And my eyes would drop out of their, my head watching them. And, um, and of course, everyone is used to his or her own image. So I was also used to my image. I didn't think any special of it. And being surrounded by only gorgeous people makes, yeah, it at least made me sometimes wonder that, well, I, I was sure I was not as gorgeous as they were. And uh, being, and a lot of people are very preoccupied with their weight and their uh, fat. So, yeah, I thought my bum was way too too big, for example, and it, it wasn't, I now know. Yeah, yeah, all these things that were that were important. But I, I'm from Holland, and Dutch people are very down-to-earth, and that helps when you're modeling. I think it's not uh, coincidental that quite a few uh, top models uh, are of Dutch origin, because they can handle the, the craziness. Okay, so going back to modeling and your exit out of the industry. Um, I'd love to focus on that because one of the key ideas of interviewing you was to have a series of episodes on post-modelism, as Bridget has come up with that term, um, just to think about what happens after, you know, for models who are listening to this, but also to hear who you are as a person and how you evolved since then. You know, I imagine you were in the 80s modeling with a lot of the, as you said, supermodels that we we know, that I know, right? Um, Cindy Crawford, probably Naomi Campbell and others. Um, and you could have stayed in it, right? And your life might have looked very different. You didn't have that vision too, uh, but you could have, but you didn't. So tell us why you didn't. I didn't because I was really unfulfilled with my professional life, that where I felt that I couldn't express myself. My opinion was not asked for let alone that it was valued. Um, I didn't get to be creative or I didn't have need to use my brains. And, you know, I do have brains. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I became frustrated, really, yeah. I wanted to do something and I, I felt my life didn't have any meaning. So I became really focused on what if I 
project lots of love through my eyes and then I would hope that people would that seeing the photos that they would feel the love that I would feel for the world like things like that I would start thinking magically you know because I, I was longing for meaning in my professional life what did your modeling career give you that was positive it gave me independence definitely from a very young age because uh, it pays so well i had the freedom to to travel for example and um and it made me streetwise also in a way because well when you're modeling you work with different colleagues every day new people so you meet a lot of different people in different cities you travel a lot so some in in one month you can be working in LA in Miami and in London and in New York and working with people from all over the world the, the makeup artists the hairdressers the art directors the stylists photographers assistants other mo models and um so i think that gives you you can devo develop your emotional intelligence with this how did your modeling career that period of your life from your teens to your late 20s how did that set the stage for your life afterwards it had a big impact because only the word model brings up associations with other people and the the thought that other people have that oh i'm talking to a model right now makes them behave in a certain way so it can become very uh difficult to make real heart to heart contact with people you can be like the fact that you are a model and people know that or that you were a model comes between you and the other because of this image that they have on on the model as a phenomenon and um that can sometimes be lonely and i even had that with friends that i had before i was modeling like let's say school friends and i would meet them afterwards i could tell in their uh, body language that oh my god this is karina she is now uh, this famous model and you know um i could tell from their body language that it did something with them also so i had to f i felt that i needed to work to overcome that and to prove them i'm still the same person uh, please connect with me like you always did um and there's also prejudice prejudicism prejudice about models like uh, blondes are dumb i happen to be blonde so of course i was not smart it's difficult to to be taken seriously so because people had in your opinion because the people had the perception that on the exterior everything was great right you're beautiful you're successful financially you're okay there was this assumption that also internally you were okay but obviously that's why we're doing this podcast because that's not always congruent yeah it's correct it's not always congruent and um even though they could realize that maybe on the inside you're not that okay on the outside you're so okay that you know that sort of levels it out don't complain because you're so lucky and i could imagine i can you know i can feel that also so i i learned to 
keep that to myself. So I know you talked about loneliness during your modeling career. So it was loneliness because you were traveling a lot and working with different colleagues every day, not a continuous sort of support, let's say, in your work every day. But it was also lonely because it sounds like you couldn't be honest with how you were feeling and your reactions to what you were doing every day. Yeah, I, f I know that I have been honest with colleagues. When, let's say I was on a shoot and people... That was also a cultural difference between being Dutch or European and American. Like in the States, when you say hi to someone, you don't say hi, you say, how are you, right? It means hi. I didn't know that. I thought, how are you means, how are you doing? I'm interested in how you're doing. So I would arrive at a set and then, good morning, Karine, how are you? I said, okay, I'm fine, but I miss my mom and or whatever. My boyfriend and I, we were fighting and now I feel uh, like shit or whatever. And then I... I saw in their face, like, what is this? I mean, this girl's really weird. So I was trying to share how I was feeling when people asked how I was doing, but then I learned that I was not really meant to, meant to do that. Yeah. And I think also people would ask, let's say the assistant or the, the makeup artist, how do you like to be a model? You'd get that question every day. And I, th I, feel that I, I have been too honest to them. Because I went, I honestly told them, well, it's nice, but also sometimes it's not so nice. And then I would feel that, I would get the feeling that that was a bit of ungrateful of me. Huh? Yeah. yeah. I didn't mean to be ungrateful, but um, yeah, it was probably because I, w I was telling my truth. When you finally left modeling, do you recall how you were feeling when you came back to Amsterdam and really had the finality of leaving the profession? Yeah, I felt... It's difficult to recall. It's a, it's a long time ago. But it was freeing, in a way. I felt freed. And afterwards, you know, you obviously had the ambition to... Um, become a news correspondent and uh, so you switched careers for seven years then you became a mother and now you're an artist so tell us a little bit about those transitions well it was not really my ambition to become a news anchor the thing is when you're modeling for years um, and I, I'm sure many models have that you start when you're really young then you're you're young so you're really pretty and fresh you have a lot of work. You, you, your friends of your same age from school, they go to university or college and they finish, they do a study, they, they learn a profession. When you stop modeling, you didn't learn anything. You just made money. But you didn't learn a profession besides like giving looks. And... So that doesn't help for your self-esteem. So me uh, having the ambition to become a news anchor was not my ambition, but it was more thinking like, oh, maybe that is something that I could, I w I'm able to do. Like, that I'm, I would not be terrible at because I have sort of representation and I'm not stupid. So I probably could start there. 
in Amsterdam happened to be a new t TV station that I, that I loved. It was very young and, and um, experimental television station, local. So I applied for a job there. And that took a while, but eventually I started working there. And that was that was fun, but I had to also start working in front of the camera because that's what would give them advantage, and that that was what got me in. And then I could ask, okay, well, I want to work behind the camera. I want to learn how to become a reporter, and so I could do that. But um, it was not until much much later that I took the freedom and the time and I allowed myself to think about what do I really want to do with my life and what what are my qualities. Corinne has two beautiful daughters. One has just left home on a gap year and the other is uh, still in Amsterdam in school and she's now an artist. So let's just fast forward to the present and talk about the role of fulfillment now where you are in your life. After having uh, really focused on art, studio arts, um, for three years and then um, a study at the Rietveld Academy and now developing her work. Yeah, my, my life has changed dramatically, totally. So I'm a, a late bloomer, so to speak. Is that a word in English? So I'm a late bloomer. And... Um, I feel very grateful for the modeling time. I learned a lot of things, also a lot of things about myself. I made mistakes and um, so it was, a, it was very, very valuable. But I do want to um, help other models what they are, with what they're struggling. I can really uh, feel for them. And um, so it's never too late to change your life. It's never too late to start an education. It's very hard to do it while you're modeling. It's very hard while you have working, worked all day, then you're really tired and you need to relax in the evening. You cannot study law in the evening. I mean, it's, maybe you could, but it's hard to do that part-time. I would recommend if you don't have a lot of modeling work to, to try and do something on the side. But since you never know when you will be working, it's very hard to schedule your studies. You would always miss lessons and, you know, college and things like that. But then you can do that afterwards. Uh, but then you become a late bloomer like me, which is not a problem. Because now, um, yeah, I feel very happy. I'm very, um, I, I feel and I find a lot of fulfillment in uh, making art. And um, being a mom. <laughs> and obviously... We hope that there are a lot of young people listening to this podcast. And I've mentored a lot of young people along the way in my career. And there's often confusion about what do I do with my life? You know, whether it's in my profession or just in general. Um, what's your advice to young people out there who don't know what they want to do? My advice would be go out and try out several things that you used to like when you were a child. Let's say you like to play with blocks when you were a child. You could maybe try and work at an ar with an uh, office of an architect, for example. Or if you like drawing, you can take drawing lessons and find out what type of creativity is your 
your type. Um, but try out different things and then observe yourself and observe where you really feel like your heart is jumping and you, are, you, become, you feel joy. F follow the inner joy. That's the most important thing. And then you will get the ideas what you can do with it. But trust that. Trust the inner joy. And know that when you do something that you really enjoy, you will become good at it, naturally. And then you will make a living out of it, naturally. So don't worry about that. So, Corinne, it's lovely to see you um, via Skype <laughs> from our Spotify studio. Uh, so, look, I, I would love to focus um, a little bit more on what we spoke about more recently, um, which is that for about 10 years, uh, you would pick your skin. Um, as a clinician, this is something that comes up, especially in the context of anxiety, stress, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive traits, etc. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about this because I think it has the potential to help people. Um, when did the skin picking habit begin for you? What do you remember? Um, it, it started to begin when I was modeling and I had to always have um, bold shaven legs. Um, but what happens when you shave, shave your legs, you have these stumps the next morning. And if you don't want that, you have to wax, wax them. And, um, then they, the hairs are gone for about three weeks, but they grow back, not all together at the same time. And when they start to grow back, you see the beginning of the hair under your skin in my, and the hair is dark color so it was looked it looked a little bit like a blackhead but it wasn't so I was checking my legs if they were smooth enough and then I would see these dark dots and I wanted to get it out and uh, sometimes the hair would grow in so I wanted to get it out so it was I think uh, it became an obsession of having perfect legs creating totally imperfect legs with all these red dots and little infections and so on. Well, and that's interesting because you mentioned shaving, right? That you, when you started modeling, you're like, what, I have to shave my legs. So there was some meaning yeah. in this for you. Yeah, I found that unnatural. And also because shaving for me is something men do because they have this just stubby beard. It's like, yeah, what's wrong with, uh, women's legs i didn't see that also i found um armpit hair six sexy i love that and yeah this, this speaks to the different ideals i agree <laughs> yeah i love that this speaks to the different ideals across cultures right that there are different social yeah. norms based on cultural context or where you live but but the the skin picking part it was also something that i did it started as like oh yeah i don't know to check how my legs were doing, but then I got to totally sort of, uh, yeah, compulsively obsessed by checking my legs. And very often you're alone in your hotel room, and what can you do with this boring hotel room and with boring television channels? And yeah, you can read and then 
sometimes I would think about what I was reading and then I would look and would see my leg and I thought, oh, let's see how my leg is doing. And I would just tear up my, my, um, my pants and see, oh my God, there I see, I see something, a hair there, what's that? And I, before I knew it, I was picking at it. I think it is a mixture of a sort of perverted perfectionism and um, frustration with uh, having not a real uh, a goal in life that feels fulfilling. It seems like being alone in hotel rooms is such a trigger. Like I went through a phase of having really, really bad anxiety attacks in hotel rooms. And I know a lot of models who have like very specific things that they do in hotel rooms as a way to kind of keep themselves together. Like they'll have their traveling pajamas. They'll have like, they have a very specific routine. And even now, like I'm out the other side of all of that, but I still, there's always that thought in the back of my head of like, okay, how am I going to feel that 18 odd hours that I have between like landing and getting to set and, you know, make it so I can make it out the other side. I think that's a really interesting angle. Yeah. And we've been hearing this quite a bit, right? That it's the isolation in the way you do your job that leaves you without the normal social support if you work on a team every day, right? With the same people, even if you're traveling or if you go to the office every day or a job where you see the same people, your job is a little bit different in that respect. And the isolation mm -hmm. can be a risk factor maybe for mental health issues in the context that we're talking about. But it also sounds like from what you said, it was like a way you coped with being alone, right? And maybe you, there was a lot of stuff going on inside internally and then then the picking was a way to distract yourself, perhaps. I'm just speculating, but what do you think of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That could very be possible because there's not a lot other of other things that you could do when you're alone in a hotel room. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, read. Yeah. But that that's it. Before, back then, there were also no. Um, we had no mobile phones. You could not Skype or FaceTime or uh, whatever with mm -hmm. your friends and family. So I, I guess um, th that so is true. So how did this skin picking? Given that sometimes the excoriations from picking can, you know, be visible, and then you're a model, right? So you have to expose your legs. I imagine. How did it? if ever, interfere with you being able to model or any shoots that you did? Well, if there's winter clothes, then there's no problem because they are not shown. Um, and I remember only one time that it really was a problem, that it was a summer shoot and I really had a few uh, nasty infected spots. And uh, But I noticed that the the people on the set, they were sort of embarrassed also. They didn't talk to me directly, like, what is that on your legs? And how come? And can we help you or whatever, you know? I would. I remember also other times that I would apologize. And uh, people would say, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. You know, no problem. We'll fix that later or something. Then maybe would retouch. I don't know. Yeah. So this there was this one time that... Um, the client, so to speak, went to complain to my agency and they sent photos of the, of the shoot uh, where they could see spots on my legs. And, um, and then that's how the agency found out. But you asked me also before, did you seek help? But I didn't think it was something that you need help for. Was it causing you, though, yeah. distress, like the fact so, that you were doing it? Did it just feel like a part of your everyday? Or was it causing you any stress? 
Oh yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. It caused me stress, and I thought it was really um, not a pretty sight. Of course, I was, I was always ashamed of my legs. Okay, that's a fact. But I, I couldn't stop myself. But I didn't know that it was something that you could be helped with. I didn't occur to me that it was something that you. I thought it was my own problem and my responsibility, and I had to deal with the consequences and if I couldn't that was just my problem yeah and you know there is something and I mentioned this before called uh, psychogenic excoriation dermatotillomania what it is is recurrent picking of the skin leading to skin lesions you know which you're describing that they were seeing and you know when it causes significant distress or you're unable to be who you are and do what you do every day because of it you know that's when it can you know be described as this disorder and it's related to OCD like obsessive compulsive thing, uh, disorders. So I was wondering if people people come to you for with other problems and they don't still they don't mention it because I'm fine now I'm not doing it anymore but I have scars of it yeah a scar uh, on my skin yeah. and um, so you know I mean it's not the end of the world mm -hmm. but I would love for girls that are now modeling and if they are dealing with something like that that you can explain to them that you can be cured with that and there's help for it because i had no idea yeah absolutely i mean i think there's no no one to blame it was just my own naivete that i thought oh well you know this is just my stupidity bad luck for me mm. yeah look i over the years i have definitely seen it come up and I think when people come to me or another other clinicians I know for help, it's when it's gotten more serious, right? When maybe other people are noticing mm -hmm. in the workplace or, you know, someone points out actually you should get help or if they're in distress about it themselves, that's usually when it presents. Um, and there's, you know, we can talk about the forms of treatment that are available for this um, in the Let's Get Clinical segment. But yes, it is, it is something mm -hmm. that we view, especially when there's you know, functional impairment, or it leads to a lot of distress that we view as a disorder and a clinical symptom and something to, to really take a look at. So, so look, you said that you, that skin picking went on for about a decade. Um, how do you, how and why do you think it stopped? Like, does it correlate with your modeling career or something else? No, it, it correlates not just with modeling. I wouldn't dare to say that, no. It, it also has to do with my psychological makeup, of course. Mm. But um, at one point I decided that I just didn't want to do that anymore. I just, uh, you know, dealt with, it, dealt with it myself. And I, every time I, was, I had the urge to do it, I would say, no, stop it. Mm. <laughs> you know, in a way like how you... Um, try to quit smoking or something. Yeah. Do you remember when that was in your life? Like where you were, New York, Amsterdam, and what were you doing at the time? I, I was, yeah, I, I was, um, I was a mother, I think. I had become a mother. Or I was about to become a mother. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow I was, there were other things, I felt more, um, satisfied with how I was living my life so I there was less frustration and less feeling of 
I am, I am not good enough. I'm imperfect. You know, I was, I was busy with, I don't know, moving, being pregnant or having a baby, taking care of the kid. You know, I was, it was real purpose in my life. And before that, I was when I was working as an anchor, I was also doing it less. But it, every time, like when the summer would come or in springtime and you need to get the hair of your legs. I mean, I know in the States you always need to get the hair of your legs. But here you can, in the wintertime, no one sees it. So you can let it grow a little bit. And then I would think, oh, my God, do I have to wax again? Oh, and of course, I, at some point... I decided I'm never going to wax again. I'm just going to start shaving. That was a big solution because then the hairs don't grow inward anymore. And you just have to, you have to deal with the stumps every evening. So your, your legs feel like sandpaper to your boyfriend, but they, yeah, that was that I had to, uh, to accept. So you said something that I want to go back to. You said, being imperfect, the feeling of being imperfect or not being good enough and how that maybe is connected. When you didn't feel that way anymore and you were becoming a mother and distracted by other changes and satisfaction in your life, there was less of a need to do the skin picking or you were able to overcome it. But maybe prior, the implication was that there was that feeling of imperfection being not good or that you were not feeling good enough. Can you describe that? Because... And I ask you to describe that because you were a very successful model on the cover of many magazines. Um, and we can show you a little bit about Corrine's career. And yet you had this feeling of being imperfect, not good enough. And that's the irony we'd love to bring out so that people see it's not about yes, the visual Yes, that's a good external. point. You, you bring it out because it's, um, it's ironically and it's also very, very... It's a sad paradox also that models are seen as very beautiful and perfect. And many models, I mean, I did, but I was not the only one. You feel imperfect because you're surrounded by these gorgeous women, I mean, from all over the world. And they are so beautiful. So, and like everybody else, when you look with your own eyes you don't see yourself you see the others the others are beautiful you only see yourself once you look in the mirror and you're so used to yourself that you don't think anything of it really the other thing is what is i think very crucial is that these model these beautiful people they were born this way so you can I, at least, I felt I could never take any credit for that. Like, when people say, oh, you're so beautiful, you say, okay, thank you, but I didn't do anything for it, so tell God how what he did, or, you know, or my parents, but how can you take credit for that? It's not fair. So where do you get your self-confidence from if, for your beauty, you cannot take the, the credit for that? So that doesn't build up your self-confidence. And what I find a painful, sad paradox is that these apparent perfect beings make other people that watch their pictures that are totally uh, touched up and 
photoshopped or there's all this lighting and beautiful lightings and photos and makeup and hair look perfect and make the watcher and the viewer and the, the, the consumer feel imperfect. And I think that is so sad because as a model, you know how it feels to be, not be perfect. And it's the last thing I would want is to have all these thousands of people that look at our pictures feel imperfect. I think, I mean, it really makes me feel sad because I know how how that feels. Mm. It's the very last thing that I would have liked done with this work. All these images of us, I mean, you must know this, Bridget, they are created. It's not how we really look. Everybody who is 16 is beautiful. Come on. Yeah, I can relate to everything you just said, like the feeling of guilt, the feeling like I am a part of a much bigger problem, and then the constantly trying to figure out where my place is in this job. If it, if what I am doing is helping other people feel worse about themselves, then why am I doing it? How can I do it? And how can I justify doing a job like this? Um, and that's been a real struggle. Mm-hmm. And then also that, that feeling of like, yeah, I got born with this face and I'm really lucky, but that doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's, it's not like when people say I'm beautiful, I'm kind of just like, I, I, I don't know. That doesn't like, it doesn't translate into how I feel about myself. Yeah, it's interesting. This is the same kind of mental no. state that seems to have stayed in the modeling industry from for decades. I've the way that I've kind of made sense of that is by being really honest about what goes on behind the model exterior and like being really public about things that I've struggled with and about like my my own personal mental health struggles and my issues with substance abuse and all of those because like I struggle with the exact same things that everyone else does. It's just that modeling kind of takes away the voice behind it. Like the feeling like I have a right to my experience in a way, because I'm afraid that people are just going to be like, oh, poor Bridget, mm-hmm. she's a model. Like she doesn't understand. Um, yeah, that was exactly. Oh, I totally relate <laughs> to that. Yes. Like I very often, I remember that I would say something if people ask, how are you doing? And then I say, well, this and that. Oh, but you don't have any problems, you know. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You cannot have a problem because you're a model, you know. It's, you, it's yeah. When you started tearing up, you alluded to the fact that, like, you feel like you didn't complete um, something that you wanted to do with respect to, like, how you were feeling about modeling and vis-a-vis this dichotomy between how you're feeling on the inside which is human and imperfect, uh, or just all the range of feelings, versus how it's portrayed in the media, which is perfect, and how that makes people feel bad, those perfected images. So what, you, what would you have liked to have done, or what would, would you like to do now to address that? Um, well, first of all, talking about it, what I'm doing now, that's also why I decided to participate in your blog. Uh, you know, I have been... When after modeling, when I started being an anchor for Dutch television and for the news in Holland, I, I became sort of, I mean, not a real celebrity, but I was now and every now and then I was interviewed for magazines that had to do with television, you know, where you can see the programs for television or in other magazines or so. And always 
this interviewer would come bring up my modeling career and so I would have to answer questions about that and um, I had been honest about it but it was not um, really appreciated you know there's this um, I felt that people were uh, reacting with well don't bite the hand that fed you so and that's make that made it very hard because of, yeah I can relate to that because I don't bite the hand that fed you but if you really ask me what I think I try to give an honest answer and um, the problem is that I try to answer these questions about the modeling and about the fashion industry, addressing the, the sort of the system, but people would take it personally. The people working in this system would take it personally. And it's of course not directed to them personally because it's not, not a personal thing. It's the whole system that is unnatural and unbalanced, I find. So I want to stress that also, that I'm not critical of any person working in the fashion industry. So I know you mentioned that you used marijuana when you were younger, and I also know that you have two young daughters and perhaps you don't want to disclose some things. Um, and the context of legality around marijuana is different in the Netherlands. But tell us a bit more about marijuana, specifically when and why you started to use it. So I don't, I don't want to say that I um, had this substance abuse and it's all caused by modeling in the fashion industry. That's really nonsense because um, I already uh, had discovered that and it, it has also to do with my own personal psychological condition that I was um, susceptible, susceptible to that. But it is also a fact that when I was modeling and lonely in these hotel rooms, and et cetera, et cetera, and I was frustrated with my life and insecure about whether it was my path or not and what else and why, that um, smoking a joint every evening that uh, yeah, alleviated these feelings. Yeah, so, but that, of course, was my personal responsibility and my personal um, way of dealing with it. I mean, not very pretty, I admit that. Did it ever start to interfere with your functioning in any way? I don't have, no, I don't think so. Okay. So there were no other... But I also made sure that it... I don't. I was. You know, I always work, kept working, and I functioned normally. And I made sure that I always was able to function as everybody else. But it did, however, cost me a lot of extra energy to pretend that I hadn't smoked, you know, and to think, oh, I hope they don't see it, or this whole tension around it cost a lot of energy. Mm. Yeah, which made me tired. Yeah. Which made me not do other things that would be healthy. Yeah, so it was a stress reliever and probably an anxiety reliever for, you know, when you were isolated and lonely or bored or needed an escape or to cope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, or insecure about myself or to cope. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So and I'm not a drinker. I don't really like alcohol so much. And I, I'm, yeah, I'm more of a smoker if I had to choose. Mm. Now I don't do anything, all of these things anymore at all. Mm. Yeah. And now I meditate and do yoga and um, all these healthy things and eat vegetarian and etc. What would you like to tell young people out there who are smoking marijuana, you know, on a daily basis from the lessons you learned? And you can think about this, for example, like, let's say you learn one of your daughters was using marijuana regularly. What would you tell them or what would you tell young people in general in light of your experiences? Um, I would say try not to do it every day. It's too often. Here in, in the Netherlands, uh, several decades ago, they made this distinction between soft drugs and hard drugs. Soft drugs being marijuana and hashis and hard drugs, all the other things like cocaine, heroin, LSD, all these other things. Um, but nowadays, the, the soft drugs in the Netherlands have become so much more strong because it's a whole commercial industry. It's a big, big billion dollar business. Now in Holland also, they export it all over the place. And so the marijuana is much stronger and it's not really a soft drug anymore, which is a big problem. So I would, I would advise stay away from it really. If you are sad or frustrated or anxious, call a friend and talk about it and just share that and it will relieve you in a much deeper way. And then if you do feel good and there's a party or something to celebrate, then, then, then you can enhance that with a little substance if you have to. But if you're really happy, you don't need that. I think I found out, I think it was John Lennon who once said that, that the very best high you can get on this planet is to be completely sober. But it does take an awful lot of courage. And, and that. that's how it, I, I can totally agree with that. And it took me many, many years to collect all that courage. But now I've, when I finally did that, and I am sober, it is really the best high that you can get and you can find. Mm, that's beautiful. But Karine, can you tell us a little bit about what your life looks today? How do you live your life? whether it's nutrition, coping with stress and anxiety, and what, what is fulfilling? What is, um, of course, very fulfilling as for everyone else is to spend time with the people you love and knowing that they are happy and healthy. Then you have such a peace, big peace of mind. But on a day-to-day -day basis, how I spend my life, I have a normal household with my um, man, we are not married, but okay, my fiance of 20 years, <laughs> he is the father of our two daughters who are uh, 18 and 12. And we are, we have a harmonious family and uh, they go to school and he is a journalist and he writes and I um, am an artist. So besides them, what fulfills me the most is to create something, no matter what. So art is a very big word, but even knitting a shawl can be very satisfying. Or, and tell us about the uh, art that you create. Um, I'm fascinated by the three-dimensional work. So I 
I'm not so good with the 2D, with flat, with drawing photos, etc. But I like to create um, installations or sculptures that are interactive, that are inviting the audience to physically interact with. So by touching the work that I make, um, their awareness is centered in that present moment. And in that present moment that they touch something, you, they are aware of how something feels that I made. They're, they're not thinking about anything else. They're just in the here and now. And um, I believe that that is where everything is. When I met you first, you were a ceramicist at that point of view. I don't know if that's the correct word, but you were making a lot of ceramics. So where is that in your life now? That, that is, um, so the ceramics is the, the medium, the material that I uh, love to work with. But I can also sometimes use different material. But I'm specialized in working with ceramics because it's a technically... Um, uh, challenging, so to speak, because you have to work with the very high temperatures and glazes and chemistry and all that. Again, ceramics is interesting for me because um, there's a big tactile in, uh, component in it, and it is very much related to time. Because when something is fired to above 1,000 degrees, it becomes as hard as stone, and it will survive time so that all the ceramic object that has been found is 26,000 years old so it, it somehow fascinates me that I'm able to make something that can withstand it it's very inspiring it's like you know I get anxious a lot and I think yesterday I heard someone say that depression is someone who lives in the past and anxiety is someone who lives in the future but the only thing that really exists is the here and now and that's where serenity comes from and I was just thinking, like, working with your hands and being tactile is the quickest way for me to, like, be pulled back into the present. Like, if I'm having anxiety attack, I just have, I focus straight in on my physical body and it just pulls me back in. Yeah. yeah. But in general, creating something with your hands is there can be therapeutic, whether it is with clay or with paint or with wool or um, baking cookies or baking bread. doesn't really matter. It w that would be an advice for me for models in this day and age. They're traveling. Uh, start knitting or crocheting. Crocheting, how's it called? Yeah, or crocheting. So satisfying. Yeah. I just, I, oh yes, yeah. Buy really beautiful wool and create something. And it also it, it um, pieces your mind. How do you say that? You're, it's makes your mind more quiet, you're knitting, and you can think about things that you experience during the day. And your work is growing. You can see you have something visible, very real that you make. You know, I have been, when after modeling, when I started being an anchor for Dutch television and for the news in Holland, I, I became sort of, I mean, not a real celebrity, but I was now and every now and then I was interviewed for magazines that had to do with television, you know, where you can see the programs for television or in other magazines or so. And always this interviewer would come bring up my modeling career. And so I would have to answer questions about that. 
And um, I had been honest about it, but it was not um, really appreciated. You know, there's this, um, I felt that people were uh, reacting with, well, don't bite the hand that fed you. So, and that's make that made it very hard because, of, yeah, I can relate to that. Okay, don't bite the hand that fed you. But if you really ask me what I think, I try to give an honest answer. And um, the problem is that I try to answer these questions about the modeling and about the fashion industry, addressing the, the sort of the system, but. People would take it personally. The people working in this system would take it personally. And it's, of course, not directed to them personally because it's not not a personal thing. It's the whole system that is unnatural and unbalanced, I find. So I want to stress that also, that I'm not critical of any person working in the fashion industry. We like to ask every single guest a version of this question. Basically, if you had 5 million Instagram followers or a way to reach 5 million people, what would you want to say to them? Love yourself. This is a very uh, big question because I take it very seriously. I would have to really think about it because I would love to say the, the right thing that would really help all these people. But it would be coming down to that, loving yourself the way you are and have peace with, with who you are. Yeah, You're really, really perfect the way you are perfectly imperfect never ever feel you're not good enough in your life beautiful Corinne, mm -hmm. thank you so much for speaking to us on our podcast we're so honored to have you it was my very big pleasure i wish you all the best and it's great that you're doing this thank you so much yeah. you are listening to model mentality welcome to let's get clinical by dr ali in this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. You're listening to our interview with Kareen Holtes. Let's review Kareen's story. Kareen Holtes is a former supermodel from the 80s. You may remember her from the covers of Harper's, Cosmopolitan, and Vogue. Her career has evolved since, from model to news anchor to becoming a mother to now being an artist. She lives in the Netherlands with her fiancé of 20 years and her two daughters. My co-host Bridget Malcolm and I recorded Kareen's interview at the end of 2019 and in early 2020. And as people grapple with ways to cope with stress and anxiety in light of the current environment, her story is deeply relevant to the now. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three aspects of Kareen's story. First, the quest to find meaning in her work and life alongside her modeling career and beyond. Second, skin picking or what we call excoriation. And third, marijuana abuse and its harmful effects. So what about the quest to find meaning in her work? Corrine's main motivation to enter into modeling came out of a desire for financial independence, specifically so that she could travel to her boyfriend in Tokyo and have that freedom. Corrine became a successful model, but at the same time, she struggled with finding meaning in her career in a way that was important to her. And as she said, she even tried to convey love through her eyes as she was modeling. She emphasizes in the interview how at times she felt that she was part of the problem as a model to uphold ideals that are not realistic, which do not represent reality, and to promote social norms which can cause distress in others. 
Over the course of her life, she finally settled into life as a mother, as an artist, and as a purveyor of a healthier way of living. She describes how therapeutic and satisfying it is to create in the three-dimensional. Her journey is living proof that finding one's path can be a long game, and from her vantage point right now, she knows that it's worth it to keep evolving and searching until you find it. Second, what about skin picking, otherwise known as excoriation? We all know that people may on occasion pick their skin, pop as it, dig out an ingrown hair. It's when this behavior becomes chronic and causes significant distress, shame, or embarrassment that it may be considered a disorder. As you heard in Corrine's story, she skin-picked for around 10 years out of loneliness, out of stress, out of habit, out of insecurities, and never knew that it was something she could seek out help for. And at the time, it was not a known separate entity within our classification system of disease. But in 2013, when the disease classification system was revised, excoriation disorder was recognized as a clinical diagnosis. It's characterized by recurrent picking of the skin, leading to lesions, and causing significant distress or impairment. It's in the same family as obsessive compulsive disorder, and it affects anywhere from 1.5% up to 5.4% of the population. Excoriation disorder is more common in females and often coexists with mood and anxiety disorders and other mental health conditions. There are several theories as to why it may occur. A few common ones include relief from tension and stress, a response to anxious or negative feelings, an impaired coping response, and a response to trauma. Other theories go so far as to link it to overbearing parents. Often the emotions accompanying include stress, anger, and anxiety, sedentary activities such as watching television, reading, boredom, and feeling tired. Corrine asked me about treatment, although she herself did not seek treatment. Many people may not seek it out out of embarrassment or feeling that it's just a bad habit. But once you receive a diagnosis from a licensed clinician, treatment options may include behavioral therapies and or medications. Speak to a licensed provider to find out what may be right for you. And third, what about marijuana abuse and its harmful effects? Marijuana is available for recreational use in many places, and just like there are known harmful effects of alcohol, it's important to be informed and know the harmful effects of marijuana, if it's permitted for use and if you choose to consume it. Marijuana refers to the dried leaves, flowers, stems, and seeds of the cannabis sativa or cannabis indica plant. THC is the psychoactive chemical in marijuana. Many young people use marijuana, and in fact, according to the Monitoring the Future survey in the U.S., Daily users are on the rise among 8th and 10th graders. Because it's so common, let's talk about the issues. According to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, we know that when marijuana use begins in the teenage years, it can impair cognitive functions, such as thinking, memory, motivation, and learning. Furthermore, did you know that you can lose an average of 8 IQ points by smoking marijuana heavily in the teens? Over the long term, marijuana can lead to hallucinations, paranoia, and can worsen symptoms in patients with psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia. Furthermore, marijuana use is linked to a higher likelihood of dropping out of school. It's also linked to more job absence, accidents, and injuries. So back to Corrine. Corrine was born and raised in the Netherlands, a country in which cannabis is decriminalized for personal use. And you hear in her interview that she's used it as a way to cope with stress and to get rid of the frustrations she had with insecurities, her career, and finding fulfillment. But she knows that marijuana use distracted her from what was going on in her life, rather than allowed her to confront her emotions and the reality of what she was feeling. 
She does not use it anymore and advises young people to feel their emotions, to find support in others as an alternative. We know for adults that there are also a whole host of other harmful effects, including increased risk for breathing problems, such as smoking tobacco and the effects of tobacco in the lungs, increased heart rate, and for the record, marijuana actually raises heart rate for up to three hours after smoking and may increase the chance of heart attack. In utero problems with attention, memory, problem solving compared to unexposed children, intense cycles of nausea and vomiting, and severe lung illness associated with vaping. So the next time you reach for your vape or have the impulse to smoke marijuana, think about the consequences and most importantly, educate your children. And notice if you are escaping from how you feel, because if you are, those feelings are going to catch up with you eventually and best to deal with them head on. Although Corrine is far removed from her modeling career, her story is an important one to tell. She has transformed her career pathway several times and is finally in a place of equilibrium and fulfillment as an artist. And along the way, her experience with stress and coping mechanisms resonate with so many of us. Many people struggle with finding fulfillment in their lives and with anxiety and stress, especially during this pandemic. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.